360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, broadcasting live from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the East Bay Area. The show is written, produced, and engineered by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. On tonight's show, we'll delve into discussion of the state of affairs within the Oakland Unified School District. It's been nearly six months since Oakland teachers went on strike to protest deplorable, con- to protest deplorable conditions within our public schools. Now, it is mid-August and students are back in their classrooms and back to so-called business as usual. Tonight, we ask what, if anything, has changed since the strike. On tonight's show, you'll hear, from, you'll hear from educators protesting at the Oakland Teachers Rally held earlier this year at Oscar Grant Plaza. We'll be speaking with Oakland educators Fatima Salahuddin and Acacia Woods-Chen about the aftermath of the Oakland Teachers Strike and the closure of Roots International Academy. And we'll discuss what challenges educators are still facing and how we can support upcoming actions and measures to defend public education in the Bay Area. All that and more coming up next. I'm your host, Kenny C. Stay tuned. All right. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again to Full Circle. I am Kenny C., and I will be your host for the night. Before we welcome in our guests, I want to get started with a clip from a rally in support of Oakland's public schools and teachers held earlier in February of this year at Oscar Grant Plaza. Thousands of educators, students, union organizers, and community supporters from multiple counties gathered to speak about less than adequate working conditions, including meager pay, limited social and health resources, huge class sizes, the infringement of private charter schools on public resources, and pending school closures. The first voice apprentices were there with Steve Zeltzer of Workweek Radio to document rising tensions as well as the growing unity among students and educators, which eventually led to the week-long strike in Oakland Unified Schools in late February of this year. Let's have a listen. This is Steve Zeltzer with KPFA and KPFA Workweek Radio. We're here with the apprentices, Full Circle, and John Perulis. And we've got two guests. This is a rally today to defend public education that's being held in front of Oakland City Hall. Uh, the teachers here are preparing for a struggle to defend their conditions, their benefits. And not only is it going on here, it's going on in Los Angeles, where there's going to be a teacher strike in, on Monday. So the struggle of teachers is spreading out throughout the country. First it was West Virginia, Arizona, and now coming to California. So that's what we're here about. And joining us today, uh, some of the organizers of the rally are Judith Klinger, she's president of the Alameda Education Association, and Chaz Garcia, vice president of the Oakland Education Association. Welcome to KPFA Workweek Radio. Thank you very much. So, uh, Judith, why don't you talk about how this came about and what the issues are? Sure, yeah. So, um, near the end of October, a bunch of the unions, teachers' unions, along the 880 corridor, 
um, decided to get together and make something happen. We wanted to do a rally to focus on Sacramento and uh, tell Sacramento that they need to increase the funding for public schools in California. Um, we are 41st in the nation in per pupil funding and dead last in terms of counselor student ratio. Um, I know in Alameda, we are currently the lowest paid teachers in all, all of Alameda County. We've challenged our school board to bring us up to county average. They've admitted that we're the lowest. They want to bring us up to county average, but it's very difficult to run a quality school district on the funding that Sacramento gives us. And, so everybody's joining in to try and get Sacramento to fund the schools better. And there's a $13 billion surplus in Sacramento. Correct, but one-time monies cannot fund an ongoing educational system. Sacramento has to reallocate ongoing monies. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks. And also joining us is Chaz Garcia, who's vice president of the Oakland Education Association. Welcome to Workweek Radio. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So why don't you talk about the struggle the OEAs are facing and the issues that you want to be bringing up today, and also to people in the Bay Area and California. Well, first I'd like to say that this is an amazing event, and it's long overdue that we've come together around the issues that are impacting all of us. And um, I'm happy that it's finally reached California and is really taking fold. But... In Oakland, um, we've had a unique struggle for the 23 years I've been here. There have always been some issues with budget. Um, we're being told that they can't fund the things that we need, which basically are resources for our students. We're asking to stop our teacher retention crisis. We lose a large percentage of teachers, 30% every year. 30%? turnover yes. in teachers. Every year, because they cannot afford to live here. Um, I'm right currently on. a PAR coach, it's because obviously the I'm not a released vice president, so I'm working. I was in the classroom for 20 years, and I'm a, currently a PAR coach. I work with teachers, some who have left because they couldn't afford to stay in Oakland. And that's a huge problem, because if we can't stabilize our teaching force, then we can't gain the momentum that we need to build relationships with the students, the communities, and support our students in the classrooms. So apart from figuring out how to support teachers in the classrooms, we need counselors. Um, we have a ridiculous ratio, which skips my mind at the moment, of counselor to student ratio, and we're not providing the resources that they needed. Meanwhile, in the last six months, um, we have added central administration staffing. They've created new positions. There's a push to create a portfolio district and what is, it, what is this portfolio district about? It's the mesh. They're proposing that in Los Angeles as well, the new superintendent? They're, me they're attempting to basically make one platform where uh, parents come to find resources for their children and meshing everything together with the charter and the public schools and the problem with that is that they are very different. Charter schools are not regulated in the same way the public schools are and then this portfolio system then is taking resources, additional resources from the public school system in order to promote the, the, the charter schools. And uh, there have been closure of public schools in Los Angeles. They're threatening to close a lot of uh, public schools. Is that the same problem here in, in uh, Oakland as far as the danger of closure of community public schools? Absolutely. We have, um, they have said as much uh, as up to 24 schools and ultimately what they're talking about is during the, the 90s when there was money from the Gates Foundation, uh, there were small schools that were started. I was a founding teacher of Esperanza which is on the Stonehurst campus. It's an Oakland public school. But it, 
with that establishment, what we have had is one building that houses two administrators, two different programs. It's financially not sustainable. So two two separate bureaucracies. Correct. In the same in the same school. Correct. Which if if we could figure out how to because we do have very different programs, so that's not to say they need to be but what they want to do is put them back together and they're not talking to the community in some cases the way that they should be. They announced that they're going to close Roots, which is a middle school, and these things are happening in East Oakland and in West Oakland where all of the students are black and brown and um, that's a problem because the they're the most disenfranchised communities. I live down the street from Roots and I know that my community and they're doing the things that they're doing because they feel that they won't get the pushback. They attempted to close a school in the hills a couple of years ago, but the parents up there didn't allow it because they were able to organize and they have like the, the savvy and the novel, you know, they understand the system. So we're working with the families to support them and um, maintaining an option because they're talking about busing these kids down to 98th, which there are gang implications for kids that people who don't live in the neighborhood don't know anything about. And this idea of closing community schools um, is that a threat to public education and what is what we want to do in, in protecting schools in our communities? Absolutely, absolutely. We need to have resources in our communities for our students. So when you go into communities like West Oakland and Deep East Oakland and you start closing schools, you're taking away options for families. And when you're talking to middle school, that's around the age where you start students, you know, that are feeling disconnected from school because they've had so many teachers turn over and they don't have teachers who are a reflection of who they are. Um, then they start feeling that school's not for them and now you're closing the one school that maybe they felt a connection with and we know that the, the dropout rates are highest among African-American and Latino students. So in making these decisions, we're perpetuating that. And I know that's not the intent uh, um, I, of our superintendent. I don't believe that's her intent. I uh, do have respect for her, but I believe that she's being kind of misguided through some of the mentoring and the decisions that have been made. Now the NAACP, National Association, uh, of, uh, has called for a moratorium on new charters. Uh, are you supporting that initiative of the NAACP? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, our school board has kind of come around, even though they're, you know, many of the seats were funded by big money, which are backed by charters. Um, however, they've just gone down to Sacramento and, and the governor has approved the charter. That's happened in one case here where we were able to get the school board to vote no. So there, That's under Prop 39? Yes. Where the uh, state board of education can uh, overrule Correct. communities. Right. And, and right. so we're speaking with Chas Garcia and, and Judith, you yes. have, do you have the same kind of problems in, in Alameda or are you different kind of problems? We have um, remarkably similar problems. People think of Oakland and Alameda as wildly different, but when it comes to public education, we take in, you know, every single child that needs a public education. And um, one of the things that is very much affecting education is um, increased needs for special education students, students who have IEPs, students who need extra things in order for them to access an education. And um, it's incredibly expensive because these kids have genuine needs and the state of California and the federal government are not um, keeping up with the funding. 
So what we end up with is um, schools struggling to meet the needs of everybody. And so, you know, we've got kids. I um, teach ELD, English Language Development, which is also called ESL. And so, you know, immigrants who are struggling and several families living together in one apartment. And um, we need to be able to give those kids decent meals at school and teach them what it's like to live in America and access our social service programs. And all of this costs a lot of money, and it should cost money. Human beings are expensive. Children are expensive. But, but aren't you spending money for the future? You're supporting That's the future exactly of, of if, young people who need a great education. So it's they can the foundation of America. It's the foundation of a functioning democracy to have an, you know, an educated populace. And Sacramento has got to change the way it funds so that we don't have to worry about school closures, so that we don't have to worry about... Um, you know, we recycle everything in our classrooms. We reuse paper. We, you know, shortages are abysmal and it's ridiculous. So, uh, your this rally is you hope the start of a movement in Northern California Absolutely. to defend public education and make sure that the state is paying for a great public education for the students that's of California. It. That, that's that's it. what that's your your end goal: a great public education. Great public education. Yes. yes. Okay. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us on KPFA Workweek Radio. And we're happy to have you, uh, to, because we need to broadcast this not just here, but all over the country, all over the world. It yes, seems, thank you. It seems the right for a public education is something that has to be struggled for today. So a great public education. So thanks for joining great. us today. Great. Thank, thank you so very much. Week Radio. And I want to thank you all. The rally here is starting. The Angry Tired Teachers are right now on the stage. And uh, they are uh, angry and tired about teaching and not getting paid enough and not being able to help the students. They send the heart, they don't care if they pass it. Working our fingers right down to the bone. And that rude kid won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. They're cooking the lunchroom, she's ready to sell. Welcome back to Full Circle here on KPFA 94.1 FM. You just heard a short news piece reporting on the Oakland teacher strike, which took place in late February of this year. I'd like to take a moment here to welcome in our guests at this time. Fatima Salahuddin is a Bay Area native and veteran teacher in East Oakland at Fremont High School, where she teaches 10th and 12th grade English with an emphasis on ethnic studies. Prior to working at Fremont, she taught seventh and eighth grade ethnic studies. Excuse me, seventh and eighth grade ethnic studies for several years at Roots International Academy, the first school to be closed by the school board. Acacia Woods Chen has been in education for most of her adult career, and most recently taught for the last three years as a public high school teacher. Her work as a ninth grade newcomer teacher with OUSD had its challenges. The strike and its aftermath made her question her career choices, and this year she decided not to return to the classroom. Acacia has a double bachelor's degree in global economics and language studies and a master's degree in international and multicultural studies. A recent Fulbright Fellow for State Department Subroom Program in Ghana, she plans to develop her international education practice and traveling agency to promote cross-cultural and international connection through education. Fatima, Acacia, thank you both for being here tonight. You're welcome. How's it going, everybody? 
And thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. So I just want to start by acknowledging that this is an emotional topic for a lot of folks because essentially we are talking about folks' livelihood and about the future of our communities. So I just want to take a moment to thank you and to applaud you for your courage to come out and share your stories with us tonight and to speak on these sensitive issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important. Absolutely. So it's been about six months since the strike officially ended and a tentative working agreement was agreed or shall I say not agreed upon. (laughs) And a lot has happened since February. But if I may, I'd like to go back to that time for just a moment. You were on strike for quite some time. Uh, What was the experience of striking like for you? Fatima, do you want to start? Sure. Um, Well, I went into the strike immediately a month following the uh, decision to close my school. So my community had already been through so much, our learning, our community being disrupted and broken in a lot of ways. And just diving head deep into the strike was kind of a lot for us too. Um, In addition to, okay, another disruption, uh, something else that's just taken our attention away from our students, from the classroom, and just from us just trying to do our jobs on a day-to-day basis. So Um, And I also want to shout out uh, Quinn Ranahan. She was former math teacher at Roots International Academy, who's currently in Montera. And she was our amazing board representative. And without her leadership, I don't think I would have gotten through that strike. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the first... First day was very empowering, but and I, I, I'll say as we got into the strike, more into the third or fourth day, um, I mean, definitely took a toll on everybody's body uh, emotionally as well. But the most um, cultivating, culminating moment for me was when the rally was bought to Roots International Academy. Mm-hmm. And that was really a big uh, influence, once again, by Quinn Ranahan, who was, you know, really pushing for that, saying if this is something we're fighting for, then why don't we bring the rally, like, into the community? And why don't we make all the teachers and all the people who are are part of the strike, march those 30 blocks that our kids are going to have to walk. And that was a really powerful moment to be marching down those 30 blocks with my students leading that strike. Mm. So um, just, uh, who was it, Sockateri, um, uh, who else, jo- uh, John A. Ellis, uh, were really big leaders and picket leaders. And seeing them become radicalized as a part of that process was also a win for me. But overall, like all that work was put in. I was fighting for schools to not be closed. Um, and I was fighting for communities and not have to go through what to me seemed very oppressive and traumatic. And it's so interesting how we're not even using those words to describe it. You know, like I've read so many articles that talk about, oh, this tumultuous school year, this, um, you know, Oakland teachers won in some ways are even remarkable. And to me, it was oppression. You know, it was trauma. And to be going into the strike after experiencing so much trauma, um, you know, really showed me just how much my students can persevere and how resilient mm-hmm. they are. But at the same time, we were mourning during that time. Right. So, yeah. Sure. Acacia, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, um, this time was hugely emotional, obviously. I work with, or I had been working with newcomer students, and so on top of a number of different ways that they were vulnerable, just, you know, physically, there was a number of, this whole year, or all of last year, and it continues to happen even today, there was a number of ice raids happening, and so we were preparing them for a number of other things, so it just felt like it was just like, 
insult to injury continuously. Like, it was either that we didn't have enough resources, which was just a regular ongoing thing. Um, and then on top of the fact that we had such high turnover at Castlemont, as there is in many schools, um, it just felt like it was a continual and systematic destabilization of our neighborhoods and our communities. And particularly, you know, when students start to ask you, like, hey, miss, um, if Roots is closing, where is my brother supposed to go to school? And mm -hmm. I have no answers. What am I supposed to say to them? I'm like, hey, that's a good question. That's the same question I have. And they're like, well, who can we talk to about this? What can we do? And so you could see some of the tension. You could see a lot of the turmoil happening because, you know, there's a number of my students face so many layered realities they're trying to support in their adolescent lives where they're just coming to a country for the first time or maybe have been here for one or two years they're learning the language they're learning the lay of the land they're learning that maybe they're going to be responsible for their family members back home because they are in the u.s now and realizing that that looks different you know what i mean the nuance of being a teenager in the u.s and having to go to school and having to do that as a way to stabilize your whole family here and at home many times. And then coming to the fact that, you know, maybe school isn't going to be the answer because the school is so unstable that it might, you know, some of my students would be like, this is the exact same thing that's happening mm -hmm. at home. And so it gave them fuel to kind of make these connections. And you could see that start to start to happen in ways that it just... I wish that we had more time and I wish that we had more space to explain to them what was going on, but we didn't even really have to. They saw what was going on. You know, these are young people. They're in a new country, but you don't have to speak the same language to be able to understand that the, the poverty was being, it's like almost created on purpose for them, right? Mm -hmm. And then when they would ask like, well, if Castlemont was going to close in a couple of years, then really, where was all? Where were all of the students going to go? And just to have no answer for them was it was a really hopeless time. I feel like um, where sometimes you would just be like, well, at least we have real community right now because we're all in this together. Mm. So I guess we're going to have to figure this out together. And this was part of the like it was so much duality. You know, there was a lot of like. Um, like Fatima is saying, there's so much mourning and feelings of loss happening. But at the same time, it was a huge time for people to come together because all of us didn't really know what we were going to be looking forward to. Right, right. That was one thing I wanted to touch on that you kind of just brought up was um, just sort of the support, like how educators, students and families were sort of working together. You had kind of mentioned a little bit, but I imagine it brought the community in some ways closer to have to fight for these things that seem like basic rights, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've, I am so close with, I mean, we went through something really powerful together and really traumatizing, and it definitely brought us very much closer as a community. Um, I still, there's parents, students that I still talk to, that I still support. Um, I remember seeing a post uh, the other day from one of my students, uh, Cassandra, who said that I just went by Roots the other day, and it just made me so sad, mm -hmm. like drove by it. And I feel the same way sometimes. And I live in East Oakland. I can't even drive by it, you know. So, um, but overall, like, it just is a really good feeling to know that um, just I've gained new critical friends. Um, 
and just people that I know um, who are just freedom fighters. Like, you know, and I think we all became freedom fighters during that time right. and really realizing, like, whoa, like, our ancestors really went through this. Like, it was just seven right. days. Like, imagine 30 days, you know? So, right. yeah. <laughs> right. So, thank you for sharing. Um, I guess now I'd like to ask you what ultimately came out of the strike aside from sort of building these strong community networks. Um, I know you had three simple demands, if I'm remembering correctly, 12% pay raise over three years, smaller class sizes, and obviously more support staff. In addition to that, I believe folks were calling for a halt to the district's plans to close or merge 24 schools, all of which were in black and brown communities. And I also remember hearing the call for a moratorium on new charter schools. Um, what can you folks tell us about the agreement that the union and the board eventually settled for? I just think it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, um, if what we're coming here for is to support students and especially given the fact that in Oakland and um, the Bay Area, we're calling ourselves sanctuary schools. It doesn't feel like we're really providing the safety, not only for the students who are born here, but also those who are continuously coming from other nations. And we know some of the background behind some of that, that we don't talk about a lot, too. But um at the end of the day, okay, we might have gotten the, or teachers in OESD might have gotten the pay raise over a couple of years. But also keep it in mind, if you look at the average of the last couple of years, inflation has been around 3% anyway. So at a certain point, it's like you're actually just keeping up with inflation, number one. <laughs> number two, um, you know, and it's been said before, like Oakland is one of the lowest paying um districts i will say the benefits were good like the dental benefits or you know i just got my wisdom teeth pulled so i'm still benefiting from that but um at a certain point it's like what value are we putting on education and the like what is what is our real strategic goal and it felt like at a certain point there is no strategic goal for to support families communities in the way that they need to be supported and especially coming from a newcomer lens there's so much more that we needed you know what i mean how are you expecting what are we really asking for students and what are we really asking for our communities if we're not giving them counselors Mm. if we don't have counselors and that's not just academic you know that's not just college counselors that's also emotional counselors we actually castlemont was right next to um a place that had an agreement with the tory children's hospital and we would have some staff members from there but it was like maybe once or twice a week that you could get them open at any given time we had one nurse for the whole school and she was part-time there because she shared between like five other campuses so at a certain point you really have to ask what are we really expecting of this situation if this is what's being provided and the the pure reality is it's a it's a dismal reality. It's like we expect for the cycle of poverty to continue because we don't have any kind of funding for or very little funding for any kind of field trips to institutions of higher education. Can I tell you myself and one of my colleagues paid for us to go to all of the ninth grade to go to Laney College to give them an understanding of different levels of college. And then after that, you know, we want to give them a little bit of like social, cultural kind of exposure. So we went to um, Oakland Museum. After the fact, they told us that they didn't have any money for that. Even though when we first turned in the permission slips, they said they were going to reimburse us. After the fact, they were like, oh yeah, sorry, we didn't, 
we don't have money for that. So, so at a certain point, it's like that's how you really. This is the way that we look at not only our students, communities, but the teachers too. Mm-hmm. It's just such a great disparity, especially when you look at what upper administration or what central offices are making when teachers are the ones who are there every single day holding students, holding parents, holding little brothers and sisters, right. you know, and they might just come into the class at any time. And it's kind of like it's kind of like being bi- at Big Mama's house. You just hold everybody. And then at the end of the day, it's like, how sustainable is this? Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, one thing, I mean, my fight started in January, you know, and really December when all these strangers in suits came and right. had this slideshow and all these data points and told me that my school was closing um, because it was a recommendation of our actual leader at that time. So it was expedited mainly because of that reason. So I had been fighting like all through that month and to go through this fight again with the strike and for it to end up only a five-month moratorium on school closures. And I'll be honest, they close our school within a matter of weeks. So Mm -hmm. five months is not going to stop this machine from, like, chewing up more schools and breaking up more communities. So I voted no on the contract, and I was... I was really, really upset when I found out that it was, you know, that it had passed. And um, I actually remember, <laughs> coincidentally, crazy, I, I had to go out and have a drink that night, and I ran into Keith Brown. <laughs> and, I mean, I would definitely be having a drink if I was him, too. For um, folks who don't know, who is Keith Brown? <laughs> uh, the president of o- Oakland Education Association. Um, and he definitely fought really hard for us. But right. And I knew that, you know, strikes aren't magic wands. You know, I understand that. But... But when I saw him and he knew who I was, I just said, you know, remember me, I'm Fatima from Roots. And he, the first thing he said to me was, I'm so sorry. It's like, I'm so sorry. Like, we tried, we fought. And I was like, I know, brother, like, just thank you for everything you did. But it just was still disappointing to know that, you know, this wasn't something that could be negotiable. And Kyla even said that school closures aren't negotiable. Right. And this is just their way, I think, of just cleaning up this horrible mess of, of corruption and poor leadership. And um, so after the strike, I just... I wanted to give up. <laughs> so Understandably so. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. Again, folks, we are speaking with veteran Oakland educator Fatima Salahuddin and educator Acacia Woods-Chen about the aftermath of the Oakland teachers' strike held earlier this year. We're exploring what came of it and what is still to come. We've got a lot more coming up right after this music break. Stay with us. Pirate Morgan, and you said he was. 
Welcome back to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. I am Kenny C., your host for the night. And you just heard a classic from Peter Tosh, Can't Blame the Youth. And tonight we are indeed talking about the youth and those who have taken up their charge and well-being. That's right, folks. We're talking about teachers, that oh-so-important and yet underpaid job that no big deal is just a little old task of raising and guiding our youth into adulthood. So we've been talking specifically with two longtime educators about the aftermath of the Oakland Unified Strike held earlier this year. We're talking resources, funding, organizing, and sadly, school closures. We are honored to have in studio we are honored to have in studio with us Fatima Salahuddin, veteran Oakland educator currently teaching at Fremont High School in East Oakland and former former Roots International Academy teacher prior to the closure. We are also joined by Acacia Woods-Chan, who has a master's degree in international and multicultural studies and is venturing out in her post-teacher life to continue her support of local and international communities in ways beyond the classroom. So up until this point, we've been speaking a lot about the strike itself and the agreement which was reached back in March of this year. But if I may, I'd really like to transition now to this issue of school closures. I know you have both gone through quite the ordeal in this past year, and it's now August. The kids are back in school. Teachers are back to their programs. But for you both, the beginning of this school year is far from business as usual. Fatima, would you like to kind of break it down for us how it went down with your prior school roots? Absolutely. Um, so our leader at that time had already let us know that this is something that he was thinking about doing personally. That was the, that was how it was framed. Um, and I think his, that was his intention. Like, let's all collectively think about this. Um, and I will also name, and with all due respect, I have so much respect for our leader, even though I didn't agree, agree with his decision. But when he had first approached us with it, he had said, I really want to, kind of break this cycle of these highly segregated schools. I want to try to like really like hold all our students, all of us. Maybe we just take 10 and we like make sure that we can get them all into a really good, safe place. You know, his intention was was there and I, I will name that. But the impact of it, I think, um, was far more than what he expected, what any of us expected. And then once it all happened, it just snowballed. So um, the what seemed like a personal decision um became just a, a decision that was made. Um, so on December, four days before we all were supposed to go on winter break, we had made a plan to at least let the community know that this was something that was going to happen. So we had planned what we call family meetings to have uh, one evening after school. And prior to the meeting starting, uh, Kyla and a bunch of, once again, strangers in suits came to our school. They had a slide deck and they pulled out this whole uh, blueprint for quality schools plan, basically. And 
we sat there and we listened. And the one thing I do remember is th the three data points they presented. And one was our test scores. Uh, two was our uh, enrollment, saying it was declining. And then the third was saying that the retention was bad um, over the last 10 years. And we're just like, mm, we've had the same teachers for, like, I, I believe our sixth grade team had been working there for five plus years together. Um, I had already been working there two years with the same team. So we're like, where are you getting these data points from? And when the opportunity came for us to ask questions, that was one of the questions that I had posed to them. Like, how is this, uh, who is generating this data? Sure. And Thanks to one, I forgot, I forget his name, but he was a board rep that was kind of their support for us. He had said the district had paid a uh, consultant evaluation firm to basically uh, create this report. And I believe it was over $2 million that he said they paid them for that. So I'm, I'm a big advocate for what um, Data Center, who used to be in Oakland, uh, a, a research firm, I believe, and did a lot of social justice work, but they do a lot of uh, research justice is how they frame it. And so really looking at how does, how does data and research harm communities? And historically, it has really harmed communities when you look at it. I mean, going all the way back to, you know, pseudoscientific, you know, ideas about people of color. So I was really, really um, just thrown back like how is this data harming my community like this so um in january you know of course winter break was not <laughs> a winter break my mind was just spinning on like how, how is this going down like how is this going to happen and even being new to like these bureaucratic kind of processes you know like sure. i remember being part of a school board meeting as you know in san francisco when i was a kid but you know as an adult and as a teacher and even feeling like are they calling me a bad teacher are they calling us bad teachers right now mm, yeah. you know like really feeling that so january we had a series of board meetings and you know we came ready we came correct we got the students we mobilized and imagine Imagine teaching all day, yeah. you know, or just disrupting your whole class and saying, we're just going to write what we're going to say tonight. That's what we're doing in class today. And then when school's over, okay, who's writing with you? Who are you writing with? Like busting hella kids there to just show up and show out and to go through all that we had went through to shut down these board meetings, you know, to see the babies just completely take over and speak truth to power, to see them form that uh, RJ circle with the help. And I'll, uh, I'll shout out Cecilia Jordan, uh, Cece, who was also one of the biggest voices who really got our students hyped and mobilized them and really represented for us, who I believe has been blackballed out of the district because mm -hmm. of her behavior at the board meeting. So it's like we can't even speak up and have dignity right, right in these spaces. And we're just supposed to be quiet. I mean, in a sea of Adults talk over and cut off children who are crying and mm. telling them, don't close my school. This is my family. How could you do this to me? And they're like, it's so dehumanizing. Yeah. But to see them still be resilient and kind of go through that, um, just to me, just, you know, like was really powerful. But ultimately, by January 28th, it was it was a wrap. And the only person, um, uh, Roseanne Torres, only person on the school board who had voted against it, one person out of all these people. Right. Um, so... So, yeah, it's just, yeah. <laughs> I remember reading uh, an article in the paper. Um, I think it was a, a quote from Jane Lee, and, and I'm just going to mm -hmm. quote her here because I just, I thought that was this was really important. But mm -hmm. she says, when the district or people or the superintendent comes out with a public statement that we need to close routes so that we give students the opportunity to go to a higher quality school, she's essentially saying that the teachers here are low quality or that the roots programming is low quality mm -hmm. or that the students at roots are low quality. And this quote just really hit me. I think that this is the essential issue, you know, like how are we defining or measuring true quality? 
true quality when it comes to education. Right. Mm-hmm. Obviously, for the state, it's test scores and attendance, but in real life, it's obviously about support and about relationships and community and about creating and maintaining safe spaces to grow and learn and, and be inspired, you know? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I love Jane Lee. She also played a big role in, you know, just holding everybody down because she was one of our leaders. So um, mad respect to her. Um, and I do actually want to share a quote from Eve Ewing's book, Ghosts in the Schoolyard, that talks about the school closers in Chicago. Um, and I barely got through the first five pages of this book and just was bawling in mm-hmm. tears because it just hit me so hard, too. Um, but she talks a lot about how we constantly witness like this seemingly bottomless tradition of corruption and political abuse and dishonesty from our leaders, especially within school districts. And I'll quote her. She states, what role did race, power, and history play in what was happening in my hometown? Behind the numbers and the maps and the graphs, who were the people, the teachers, the children, the neighbors, who would be affected by the decision to close so many schools and to be one of those people, like, and to be in it? I mean, really show me how ugly oppression really is. Right. Sure. So. Okay, so do you have anything to add at all? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was just hard. I mean, we were, during the time of the strike, I mean, so leading up to it, we have all this different ways of feeling disenfranchised as teachers already, um, which has already been said. The retention was super high. I I mean, I think at Castlemont, in the PD, the professional development, before the year starts, we had maybe 50% 50% new teachers on the very first day there was a fight <laughs> between a new teacher who was, you know, a white man coming from who knows, out of the state um, and a, te- a veteran teacher of color who just nobody was being served properly, right? And this is even before students got there. So you can just imagine some of the right. turmoil and the tension that happens when we're understaffed, we're under-resourced and then... Um, you know, even from upper administration, gaslighted, gaslit, gaslighted in PDs because we're being told the similar things that we're not teaching our students, we're teaching our subjects. And it's like, okay, but we have these standardized tests that we're also being told on another side that we're not succeeding in. So what are we, what, what are we supposed to do? It felt like we're just tasked with the impossible. Sure. We have to basically get them to a certain point of workforce development and internships and all these things, but nobody wants to come to Castlemont or... More so, we're like a nonprofit, like um, dreamland where there's just all these people coming, cycling through, cycling through, but we don't actually see the benefit of the work that our students are doing there. So, case in point, and I'll just put it out there you know, I don't work there no more, but either way, there's two different farm, like farm produce um, nonprofit organizations that are at Castlemont. I want to see data that shows how many of the students or the families or people in the community have even access to that food that's being grown there. Because I can say for sure that I know at least one of the programs takes the food that the students are cultivating and sells it to North Oakland Mm. residents. And so at a certain point, it's kind of like, what do we think? What, like, honestly, and I remember I would be sitting at, I wanted to know, like, what's happening? How do we have all these different nonprofits? We have these solar parking structures. We have a beautiful fab lab that's in conjunction with Laney College. But there's nobody staffing it. I remember I was called in one time to um, to sub, and there was no teacher there. There had been no teacher there, and they told me there had been no teacher there for months. So every single day, and this is this is like 
design technology. They had right. 3D um, woodcutters. All these, I had, I had never gone, I had like basic home ec, like, you know, from like <laughs> Ferris Bueller days off type, of 80s type, you know? And so seeing this was just really a travesty. So leading up to the strike, there was all this tension. There was teachers that are at each other, that are at each other's necks. I remember I sat in a, um, what was it, SST, um, like teacher parent uh administration meeting and we looked at the budget and I remember having questions about this and being kind of shushooed, right? And mm. then I remember in another PD asking like, hey, are we going to actually go through thing, basic things like uh, fire drills, earthquake drills, and was also gaslit in front of the whole of the staff. And then from that point, I think at a certain point was a little bit blackballed too because I was not invited back. And then I was told that my position had already been filled at the end of last year. Mm. But so all of this leading up to the strike, and then like Fatima was saying, after a full day of work, when you're trying to tell students this is what's going to happen and being frank and being like, I don't know. I don't have these answers, but mm -hmm. please join us on the on the line you know be there with us bring your families and they're like yeah right miss are there gonna be cops there like my, you know <laughs> right so and then after this going to a cluster seven meeting which I, there was just so much hope and there was just so much passion but everybody was kind of just you know our our base was on fire we didn't have any kind of stability so everybody was just trying to do whatever the best thing was sure. and that's when you saw that people you know the hope that we all had started turning into a little bit of hopelessness and then desperation. Mm. And then you saw teachers starting to turn their backs and actually cross the picket lines because they were just like, look, I still have to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. I still have children. I still have this. I have still student loans that I need to sure. pay off. I cannot leave because this being a teacher is going to take care of X, Y, and Z. And even though it wasn't a lot and it's not what we were, you know, we were trying to get to a point of more fiscal stability, there were just, you know, after a week, teachers were like, I just can't. I just right. can't. And how can mm -hmm. you be mad at that? I you can't can. tell yeah. I can't tell somebody that they can't go back. You know, they they have children, you know, some people have second or third jobs, but at a certain point it just came down to the practicality of missing another days of work. Mm -hmm. And so when we got to the second week, it was just kinda like, Okay, at a certain point we've again been doubly destabilized and not only when that deduction was right, taken out right and <laughs> then some, and then it, there was just so many layers to it because so so many teachers also didn't want to necessarily go for the there was like a strike fund like grant from right. OEA mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of um wanting to hold on to some shred of dignity sure in just such an undignified space that just kept on cutting and cutting and cutting at you. And so, I mean, there was just loss on top of loss. And so just to, to play off kind of your uh, what you were saying about stability, stability just now, I just wanted to kind of take this and just kind of big picture sort of direction right now and just kind of pose the question like what happens when the cost of rent is so high you know that a community's leaders and educators specifically can no longer afford to live in the community I mean it's happening all around us like what does this kind of displacement ultimately ultimately mean for not only at-risk children in our communities but also just for the community as a whole you know 
I mean, there's some kids I'm worried about right now that, mm-hmm. that I mean, there's a bunch of kids, too, that, I mean, there's one student I remember who hates the school he goes to now because right. he, he was in seventh grade there. And also his, his mother, um, one of the parents, Addie, who was also a big role in the strike, worked right at the clinic, right on, right on the campus. And she posted that he hates where he goes to school now. Mm-hmm. He was looking forward to continuing at Roots, looking forward to having the teachers that he already knows. Um, so, and students that I know were able to just walk across the street that can't anymore and that could barely make it to school on their own because they don't have a lot of support from their parents who are working their butts off, who wake up at four or five in the morning or who work overnight and kids got to get themselves up, you know, because it, it beats that way sometimes, you know. I had to get myself ready. M- me and my sisters, I mean, my sister Leah was my older sister. She would get us ready. So my mom was always working. So and I know students who have that same kind of lifestyle and who, you know, once again, like many other educators, concerned about how vulnerable they are, concerned that some of them are going to be sexually exploited Mm -hmm. walking down international, concerned that some of them are going to easily just get involved with the wrong people in in whatever kind of lifestyle. So that really isn't pushing them towards, you know, strengthening their educational pipeline. So I think it's weakened it in a lot of ways. Um, And kind of back to the point about data, you know, I really... I mean, I really feel strongly about it and and am a strong advocate for it and communities taking and communities taking that power back and us being the generators of the data, you know. So one of the things that I did do, and I might even lose my job for saying this, but I had initiated an opt out at Roots um, because they expected us to still after the school closure and the strike. They're like, we still have to do SBAC testing. I'm like, I have to do SBAC for a week in this environment, in this climate, in this... That seems cruel. It was cruel, and I said, I am not doing that to my students who have already been through so much, and these test scores were used to harm them. So why are we going to continue to contribute to this? Who knows? It could have been the test they took in sixth grade that came back to kind of haunt them. So when I had posed the idea, because I I did this behind my leader's back, and I definitely, I almost got in some serious trouble, and I will name it, and I didn't really care about the consequences because I was just concerned about them. But I told them, hey, I'm showing you how to do this. Here's the letter. I'm going to type it up, give it to your parent and sign it. And then it became maybe seven letters and then seven turned into almost 100 letters from the students. And the almost the entire eighth grade class didn't take the test. So I'm really proud of that. And I think nice. if more, what if the schools, we even said, what if the schools in the hills did this, hmm. right? What would happen if we all just didn't do our standardized testing? We said we're not doing this. You know, um, and how much money would be threatened by the district? How much would they lose? You know, so, so yeah, I think more people need to kind of um, really understand how harmful these tests are. And I mean, it, it has been known, but why are we still using these test scores to kind of continue to close down schools? So, sure. Do parents of your students now have access to what you were speaking about before, um, generating your own data type situations? Um, I mean. Not that, not that I know of. I mean, we're. I'm still even surprised where I even got that information on that same quality schools blueprint slideshow that they uh, that they're continuing to use. Um, and I mean, uh, going back to Jane Lee, actually was trying to say, hey, what if we like? I remember she was going around surveying all of the staff saying, hey, look, and even like doing some backdoor. I remember she tried talking to Amy Ng personally and saying, hey, like, look, I collected the survey and all these teachers said that if we phased out like, okay, you guys are going to close us, but please give us more time. 
please. Like at the very four least. months was not enough time for anybody. Right. And I barely got my job at Fremont the like the weekend before school started because I was struggling to find another teaching job because I also had some credentialing issues. But how am I supposed to do all that work for my credential during all the stuff that's happening? But right. Jane Lee really tried to say like, hey, this is actually our retention data. Like, can can this change something? You know, but it didn't because <laughs> they're kind of coded, redesigned ways of being oppressive or more are more powerful. So, and kind of to add to your question, I think some of the long term effects of having um, a number of these teacher leaders pushed out. Right. I mean, you can see right now you can start to chart disproportionate representation. If you have, for instance, you know, from the newcomer program, many like a majority of monolingual newcomer teachers, and we have student a student population that are number one refugees. Number two, they're from Yemen, Honduras, um, mm -hmm. Mexico, Guatemala. You have mom speaking students and we're, we don't even have a mom representative in the district. Mm -hmm. I think there's one interpreter that speaks mom. And so at a certain point, you have all of these teachers who are coming mostly white, mostly women coming from places that are rural areas outside of California working with inner city youth mm. that are not even necessarily inner city because well in the newcomer program they're from other countries and have completely and that in itself is a whole steep learning curve because you're learning a whole culture and maybe learning a language if you take the opportunity to go ahead and do that on top of your workload and so I think at a certain point this leads for a lot of room for cross-cultural misconceptions or misunderstandings that because the teacher is the one who has the authority this can lead to a lot of institutional violence this can lead to a lot of um, push out it can mm -hmm. lead to a lot of um, you know, out of convenience because we're everybody, no matter where you come from, is just under overworked and understaffed. The convenience of just being able to kick somebody out or not talk to them or give them a failing grade or not give them an extra opportunity for X, Y, and Z because you don't understand the student. You don't understand your population. And so at a certain point, I think that, like Fatima was saying, it kind of kills the educational pipeline. And it starts with, it can start with, the first teacher that you meet when you get to a new place and then you recognize that actually this is probably how my whole educational career is going to be as a 14-year-old, as a 12-year-old, as a 9-year-old. And so I think that these things are really being overlooked. And, and a lot of, if you go every single year, I see at Casamont, more and more teachers of color were being pushed out. And I think at a certain point, I suppose, many of the teachers who are willing to stick up over things or, you know, to make a... make noise over things were the ones who had also learned kind of through adversity I have to speak for myself mm -hmm. because nobody else is going to do it those were the students who had to get up on their own get themselves dressed because their parents might have been working right. and so if you have teachers like that then they're you know they're easy to be pushed out because sure. they speak they you know so unfortunately folks uh, it looks like we are nearing the end of tonight's show but before we say goodbye I would like to ask you both Fatima Acacia if you have any final thoughts you'd like to share or anything that you're just burning to get out before we do wrap up an hour goes quite quickly um, I will keep the struggle alive and Roots still lives. I have over, I'm, I mean, it seems like between 30 and 50 Roots students at Fremont High School that I can still continue to teach and that are still a part of my life and my community. And we need to do more to keep teachers of color in right. OUSD and we right. need to support them more because, I mean, this summer my rent was late twice and that over 20 like $300 that they took out like that made a huge impact even though I was definitely 
glad I did the strike. But um, yeah, we need to like support our teachers more financially. And that's why teachers of color are leaving. We're tired of being poor. Like we're trying to break the cycle of poverty in our families. And I can't do what I love in order to do that. Like, so having to make that decision is, is, is really inhumane and unfair. So they need to fix that immediately. Mm. I would say a similar thing. I would urge parents and caregivers to definitely get involved. Know what the budget looks like at your student school. What are they teaching your children? What what are the current activities that they're focusing on? What are this what are the teachers' backgrounds? What are what's the long term development plan? Parents I think really need to get involved because what from we saw from the strike, when we all come together, we can really make a change in continuing to just get better for our whole community. Mm. Well, thank you again, both of you, for being with us. It's been educational, to say the least. You're welcome. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you both in the studio with us here tonight. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Yeah, and that brings us to the end of tonight's show, folks. Thank you so much for listening. All of our shows, including this one, are archived at kpfaapprentice.org, where you will also find links to resources mentioned during our conversation. Tune in next week to Full Circle for a special episode featuring our very own Free Will and Frank Sterling with his second installment on houselessness. A big thank you again to our wonderful guests, longtime East Oakland educator Fatima Salahuddin and international multicultural studies educator Acacia Woods-Chan for joining us tonight. Big thank yous to our executive director, Ms. M, to our technical director, Frank Sterling, and last but never least, to our production consultant, Joy Moore. I've been your host this evening, and they call me Kenny C. Special thanks to CBG on the board and to KC, our incredible tech assistant representing Audacity. And as always, thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. La Onda Bajita is up next. Stay tuned. Yeah.